Well, good morning. If you have a copy of a Bible on hand, I hope that you do, please find James chapter 4. Uh, if, if you can't find that passage, uh, just um, use your table of contents. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Now, this morning, as we listen to God speaking to us, here in James chapter 4, it will be helpful if we keep something in mind. And it's this. Every kingdom has its own way of doing things, its own customs and policies. And sometimes the difference between one culture, one nation, one kingdom, the difference between its way of doing something in another kingdom, sometimes these things are quite funny. Um, for example, in the early 2000s, Janelle and I lived in England. And England uh, drives on the other side of the road from us. So we drive on the right. Is that correct? Yeah, I hope so. We drive on the right side. In England, they drive on the left side. Now, that that affects a whole bunch of issues in life. For example, in America, when, when you're walking towards somebody you, and you're going to bump into each other, most Americans, by habit, without even thinking about it, pull to the right. So if Sam and I are about to walk at each other and I pull to the right and he pulls to the right, because we're coming toward each other, that means we, we get, get around each other. Well, in England, they pull to the left. So one of the ways this plays out quite funnily is um, when we lived there, Janelle and I were going to church one Sunday and a, a friend of ours was walking toward us and went to greet us in the kind of traditional British way with a kiss on the cheek. And um, so this woman comes toward me and she leans forward to put a kiss on my cheek and I pulled to the right. Well, she pulled to the left, which meant her lips didn't hit my cheek, they hit my lips because we went the same way. So then I tried to go the other way. She tried to go the other way. So she just eventually held my head still and said, just be still for a minute. Um, that was funny, and I still think it's funny when I think back about it to this day. There, there were times we'd be, I'd, I'd be going around the corner like at an airport or something and about to bump into somebody, and I pull right and they pull right, and it's like we're dancing, all right? So kingdoms have their own way of, of cooking, their own way of celebrating things, their own way of raising children, of dealing with money. Every kingdom has its own way of doing things, its own customs and policies. To be a Christian is to be in God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. And, and learning to be a Christian is about discovering the customs, the habits, the attitudes, the policies of God's kingdom. Discovering ways that Jesus' kingdom is different from the kingdom you were raised in, from the kingdoms of this world. Now, perhaps you've grown accustomed to thinking about this in terms of, for example, God's approach to sex, God's sexual ethic, or God's emphasis on honesty and integrity. And so many of us sense that the United States kingdom, for example, has an entirely different view of gender, of marriage, of divorce, than the one Jesus' kingdom has. Our culture's approach to family is conflicts with the approach to family in God's kingdom. Now, 
over the last few weeks, we've seen the difference in the way we use our tongue, the way we speak in God's kingdom versus the kingdom of America. Now this week, in our passage of scripture, we come face to face with the most fundamental difference between God's kingdom and the kingdom of America. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Okay, so here you have a business person. It could have been a man, could have been a woman. We don't know which. And we also don't know what kind of business this person is up to. It could have been taking local products and selling them in these other locations. At, at that time, that happened a lot with grain and figs and wine and olives and even shoes. People living in, in, in this part of the world were exporting those goods. Now, on the other hand, it could have involved importing. It could have involved going to these other cities, purchasing products, bringing them back to the local market for selling. This was done with things like spices and incense and silk and rare woods and pottery or baskets. Another option is that this business person could be going to another location, hiring himself or herself out to work in, in a business in another city. At the end of the day, we don't know if this was a man or if this was a woman or what kind of business they're up to, but during this period of time when James was written, there were increasing lucrative business opportunities. The issue that God is alerting us to in this paragraph is not business. It's not planning. It's not making a profit. The issue that God is using this business person's approach to show us, the issue is the ways in which we live our lives as if God doesn't matter. The ways in which we live our lives as if we are self-sufficient and we don't really need God. This sentence Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This is not about making money. This is about making your desires, your passions, your gifts, your abilities, making those things your starting point for planning. And that's the essence of being self-centered. Making yourself, your desires, making your passions, your starting point. And that is at the heart of how the kingdom of America teaches us to live in a way that is in conflict with how the kingdom of God teaches us to live. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that your passions or your desires, I'm not saying they don't matter. They they absolutely matter. And this is something our culture is really good at helping us with. One of the greatest gifts of God through the American culture is the ways it's alerting us to the importance of each individual. 
But there's a problem with how our culture handles that, how the kingdom of America handles our uniqueness. It teaches us in the movies we watch and the songs we sing and the stories we tell and the way our social media is structured. It teaches that our hearts, our desires, our passions, our inner true self, that is the starting point for life, from planning our life. And that the journey of life is ultimately the journey of overcoming all external expectations, all the shackles and burdens and responsibilities that keep us from expressing our deepest desires. James chapter 4 verse 13 is talking about the exact approach to life that America majors on. The approach to life that says, start with yourself. What do you want to do when you graduate? That's what we ask people, even Christians. What do you want to do when you grow up? Where do you want to live? Do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids? How many kids do you want to have? And and just imagine how powerful those questions are when over the years they function like gravity functions on a board on top of a fence. They bend us into a way of approaching life that says the starting point is you. Over and over, we reinforce this approach to life, and it plays out in the way businessmen and businesswomen in America today make their business plans, and it plays out in the way young people choose a career, or who they date, or who they marry, or if they get married. It plays out in the way middle-aged men and women go through their midlife crisis and Think about changing their careers. It goes, it goes into the way young couples, in the way they decide, will they have children or not? It plays out in what we do with our money. It plays out in what we do with extra money that surprisingly shows up. In what we, in, in this whole way of living, we're taught subliminally here in America that the starting point, the way we plan is from our own self's desires and perspectives but notice verse 14 you don't know what tomorrow will bring what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes in other words it's so foolish to go about making decisions and making plans as if you are the starting point and God isn't It's foolish to live our lives, to make our plans, to decide what we're going to do when we grow up, what our career will be or who we will marry. It's foolish to make these kinds of plans as if God doesn't matter and his will is not our starting point. This is foolish because none of us know the future. So we're making our plans about the future when we don't know the future. And, and not only that, none of us are even guaranteed to make it to the future. If 2020 taught us anything, surely it taught us those two lessons. After all, think back to this time last year. How many things have you gone through that you had no idea were coming around the corner? <laughs> When I think back to the first week of February last year, I had no idea that in about two weeks my mom was going to catch a virus I'd never even heard of at that time. She was going to get sick and die all alone in a hospital. I had no idea that in one week, Patrick Hogan 
was going to die. I, I had no idea that person after person in my family was going to experience unspeakable tragedies, that I was going to come close to dying myself, that our sister Karen Cazell was going to suffer from pancreatic cancer, that my kids were finishing up their last weeks of school for over a year. The list just goes on and on. It is so foolish of us to forget that when we are making decisions about our lives, when we are planning things, that, that so much about the future we have no clue about and that our lives are so fragile. But notice, living this way, making your plans from the starting point of your desires, from your thoughts, from your intelligence, from your abilities, starting from there, it's not only foolish. Notice in verse 17, 16. Notice in verse 16, it's not only foolish, it is sinful to live that way. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. When we approach our lives from the starting point of our desires, our thoughts, our plans, when we start by looking in this way, this independent way of going about our lives, at the end of the day, that is the essence of arrogance. It is built on the arrogant pride of disregarding God. And that's the original sin. That's the temptation that Adam and Eve gave into in the garden. It's pride that leads us to deny that we are creatures and God is the creator. But this is ingrained into the heart of the modern world. Through our school systems and our media, we are convinced that we can work out the truth of science, of politics, of economics, of human relationships. You pick the category of history. We can, pick, we can come to the truth independent of God, that the route to true knowledge is reason, experience, and observation. This is the fundamental thing that the kingdom of America teaches us. You can make it without depending on God. And oh, you can be a Christian, you can add God to Sundays, you can add God to the peripheries of your life, but when you go to work, you you check that at the door. When you do your politics, you check that at the door. When you teach in our universities, you divorce yourself and you become objective and you put your subjective beliefs in God at the door as if you can go about life in your teaching, in your politicking, in your economics or in whatever. You can go about it without God, independent of God. And that is not only foolish, it is idolatry. It is sin. As James says here, it's evil. To live as if we are in control and God, he doesn't really matter. He's like the decoration around the edges. So whether we're deciding on our career, our marriage, or what we do with our money, what we do with our gender, our bodies, our sex, our time, our power, our resources, the kingdom of America teaches us to start from what do you want to do? Start from ourselves, and then if you want to, you can add God into the mix. Now, thankfully, in this passage, God offers us a way to resist the powerful teaching of the kingdom of America on this issue. Listen to what God says 
in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So here are two things we can do to resist the the powerful current of the American approach to sidelining God from true living. The first thing that we are taught in verse 15 is that in order to overcome our habit of living self-sufficient lives apart from God, the first thing we need to do is to remember that our lives are on loan from God. If the Lord wills, we will live. This isn't an act of resignation. Well, if God lets me, I'll live tomorrow. This is a deep trust that my very life is on loan from God. And putting this at the center of my approach to planning things, to making decisions, really believing this, really remembering it regularly, that God is the creator and I am the creature. And everything I do is in his presence, in the fear of him. And that all of my life must start from the point that my very life is on loan from God. The second thing we're taught in this passage to do, so the first is an attitude. An attitude of God is the creator, I'm the creature, my life is on loan from him. The second thing we're taught in this passage, it's not an attitude, it's an action. An action we can do that's like putting your oars in the water so that you can row forward against the gale force winds of our culture that's indoctrinating us into living as functioning atheists, as if God isn't really the most important reality. The second thing is that in every area of your life, actually make God the starting point for your decisions. I'm going to give you three examples so you can see how practical this is. Two of them come from an experience, experiences I've had with my father. And the third one comes from a man who lives in northern Virginia by the name of Stephen Garber. The first, the first example, when I was growing up, my dad, um, we didn't have much money. And my dad uh, taught me over and over, when you suddenly get extra unexpected money, wait. Wait to discover why God gave it to you. And very often, what is happening is that God is supplying money before the need arrives. And so by teaching this over and over to me throughout my life, Janelle and I have developed this habit. Whenever extra money shows up, we try to begin from the standpoint of, we don't know what this is for. God, what is this for? Instead of jumping to, oh, wow, look, extra money, I've been wanting to do X. A second way that my dad taught me to to make God the starting point and not the little blessing at the end 
But the starting point was when I was trying to decide about getting married to Janelle. I went to my dad and asked for his advice. I said, Dad, I really want to marry Janelle. Should I? Is, it, is this the right thing to do? And my dad's response to me was so practical. He said, Aubrey, it's easy. Ask yourself the question, can I serve God better if I marry Janelle? Do you see what dad did? He didn't say, look deep in your heart. What's your deepest desire? He forced me to start with God. God's will. God, he's the ultimate reality. Over and over, my dad has showed me, he's shown me how to live my life, whether it's in my money or in my marriage or wherever, how to live by making God the starting point. Third example of how to make God's, God the starting point for your life comes from Stephen Garber. I, I want you to think about your work, your job. If you're young, if you're in school, you're probably often being asked or thinking about, what am I going to do when I grow up? If you're in college and you're thinking about your career, the most important question when it comes to our work is not, what is your passion? Now, that is an important question. It's not the most important. And if you start with it, you're in trouble. When that's your starting point, that is a way of approaching your future exactly like it says in verse 13. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year and trade and make a profit. This is a way of starting out your thoughts about your career from your own vantage point, your own perspectives and passions. It's not a way of making God the ultimate reality. So it's unwise to start thinking about what you're going to do when you grow up or if you're in midlife when you change your... What is, it's unwise to start by saying, what do I want? Here's a catch, though. It's also unwise to start by asking, what is God's will for my life? That, that, that's not a good starting point either. That is a good question. What is God's will for my life? That's definitely something you need to ask at some point. But notice how suddenly all of reality is still bending around me. The way you find God's will for your life is not by starting with yourself. Start instead with this. What is God's will for this world? Do you see how if you start there, you're decentering yourself? You're fighting against your own idolatry? Now, here's four questions to, to use to think about your career. Number one, what is God's will for this world? Number two, where is God's will being done in this world? Number three, where is God's will not being done in this world? And now, when you've got those three questions on the board, now say, what do I need to do? to become part of God's will being done in this world. This is a far wiser way to approach life in the fear of God, before the face of God. I cannot tell you how important it is to make these questions the ones that matter when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life. And this is something those of you who are in the public school system this is something that your guidance counselors and your teachers will not put on your radar. But this is the starting point of real wisdom. 
Start by asking, what is God doing in the world? What does he want done in the world? That is a much better place than what are your passions or what is God's will for my life? This is how you approach vocational discernment as a creature and not a creator. This is how you approach your life, remembering that your life is on loan from God to be held in trust. We can only live well when we hold God at the center as, as the starting point of every endeavor. So these Christian businessmen and women here in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, they had befriended the world in the way they went about doing business. And we do the same thing. We have befriended the world in the way that we sideline God when it comes to our plans for the future. But we don't have to. We don't have to do that. 2020 has given us a gift. The year 2020 has reminded us that we don't know what tomorrow brings. It has reminded us how fragile our life is. But here's the catch. The graced moment of insight has a shelf life. The gift of 2020 and teaching us what's really important, how fragile our lives are, that we don't know the future, that glorious perspective that we gained through 2020 will fade away. We will go right back to the old ways. We will slip back in our old habits. So the the thing you have to do whenever you have an experience in life that gives you the gift of a graced insight, the thing you have to do is you have to cultivate that insight. And the way we can cultivate the gifts of 2020 is by constantly remembering that life is alone from God and learning to make God and God's will the starting point for everything we do. Let's pray.